Welcome to In the Wake with Whitley. Here on this podcast, we cover mental health, life lessons, mindset growth, and tons of storytelling. Together, we'll laugh, we'll cry, and everything in between. I'm your host, Whitley Rogers. I'm a certified life coach and mental health advocate. I'm also a survivor of sexual and mental abuse. I'm here to open up those conversations that are normally uncomfortable or hush-hush in society. Keep listening for bits and pieces of my personal journey and insights along with other interviewees. This is a trigger warning to preface this episode. This episode may include explicit content, graphic details, or heavier, sensitive, and mature topics. Listen at your own risk and take precaution if you suffer with a mood or mental disorder, suicidal ideation, or a victim of abuse, rape, or trauma. The following episode could contain such content. The last thing I want is for this episode to trigger or provoke negative thoughts or feelings for you. All right, so this week I have a special guest, Kristen, here with me today. And I'm very excited for you guys to hear her story and hear what she has to say because she's an author. She wrote a book about her experiences and I I was trying to think about how, how I first heard about her and her book. And I think it was a while ago, probably over six months ago. I don't even know if you remember this, but in the We Are Her Facebook group, which We Are Her is a community for sexual assault survivors. And I think they had posted something about secondary survivors of abuse. And Kristen had responded and said, I actually wrote a book about this. And I responded like, hey, what's this called? Because I want to read it. And so I had saved her book. Months later, I bought it, read it, and then reached out to her because I was in awe of her story and her strength. So now she's here with us today to talk about all that. So hi, Kristen. How are you? I am doing so well. I'm doing so well. How are you doing? Pretty great. Will you introduce yourself a bit? Like, what's your story and who are you? Yeah, of course. And so just an FYI, it's, it's Christine. I get Kristen Christine. a lot, though. Okay, sorry about that. People mess up my name all the time, too. I no, asked. You're, you're all good. It's seriously, I think my whole seventh grade year, I was called Kristen and I corrected oh. my teacher. And I just was like, after, like, after I corrected like so many times, I'm like, eh, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> really doesn't bother me. You're all good. So my story, I mean, first off, thank you so much for like reading the book. And I remember that post and it's funny you say that. So, and I love We Are Her. I mean, I think the community that they have is tremendous and just gives us a sense of not feeling alone through the traumatic experiences that we have. And truthfully, so I was raped at the age of 19 and it was a long healing process. Now I'm not going to tell you how old I am because I feel old. But I mean, you know, it's been about 15 years since that had happened. And so it really took me quite a while to figure out what the right steps were for me to heal through that. I kind of always had written out what had happened because I didn't want to forget pieces. And even though that was hard throughout the years as I wrote and I wrote, I realized that once I got to a certain point in my healing, I started to think about it. And I started thinking about the individuals around me, like including parents, aunts, uncles, friends, 
you know, whomever. And I was like, you know what? I bet you, I know for a fact that my parents did and we never really openly talked about it. And so I figured too, that my friends and other people in my family or, or the community that was around me had experienced something traumatic too. And so when I started to do some research, I stumbled upon secondary trauma, or it could be called also vicarious trauma as well. Mm-hmm. And I decided, you know what, I'm at a point in my healing that I'm comfortable doing this. So I started writing letters to family members, to friends, and it was letters that just asked, how did you find out what happened to me? It was about 2011 and this happened in 2004. At that point, I couldn't remember who I told at that point in the very beginning, who I didn't tell. There were a few key people I knew that I told specifically, but I couldn't remember exactly, you know, I want to know how did they find out? How did they feel? How did they feel as we progressed through the the prosecution and the trial? How did they feel about sexual violence in our culture, through our judicial system, through all different types of aspects? And I mean, the response I got was amazing at the fact that the individuals I reached out to actually wanted to share their story and they were open to it. And what I ended up doing is because these, I mean, the letters were very hard to read. I sat across, there was, I had a woman, her name was Bonnie, and she kind of helped me through this process of putting the book together. But before we even started putting the book together, she literally would come to my house, sit at my dining room table. We'd put a recorder out and I would read the letters aloud first time ever to her record my reactions to them. So I kind of had an idea of when I wanted to start formulating and putting the actual book together that I knew how I was feeling in that moment because I just knew reading them again later, I might feel differently. I feel like once you read something so many times through, like your emotions change because you've already heard it or seen it, you might pick up something else, but I knew that emotion was going to be different. So that's really how that came to be. And it came from my own traumatic experience. And I'm definitely in in such a good place now. I'm married. I've been married now for seven years to my husband. We have two beautiful children. My son just turned five last week and um, my daughter's two. And it took me a long time. But one of the big things for me is I learned to love myself. And when I was able to do that, I was finally able to fully love somebody else. That's so beautiful. I love that process of you writing your book and getting all the pieces put together and really capturing that raw emotion. Mm -hmm. So crucial. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was a tough process. And I just remember, like I said, I I don't think that I could have processed them if I would have done it any sooner. Yeah. All right. So can you retell your experience for those that have not read your book, what your experiences with sexual assault were? When I was 19, I was a freshman in college and I was very naive and I was young I was a virgin at the time. And if you would have told me stepping into college exactly like what sexual assault was, rape, I mean, any of those terminologies that are out there surrounding abuse, truthfully, I really don't think I had any knowledge of that. I mean, no one really sat me down and said, this is what this means. And this is how this looks or whatever the case may be. And at that point in my life, I wouldn't have known even what the right way to tell somebody what those things are. And also I feel at that point, this is back, like I said, in 2004. So at that time it was starting to like creep onto the surface of of becoming a more prominent topic, but it still obviously hasn't happened until years later. And so I had developed a crush. I always changed name for the purpose, just for the purposes of safety. But I, I had this crush over the summer between high school and college and his name, I'll give him the name of Steve. And I don't know what it was if I thought that 
Steve was the one I was going to marry or whatever the case may be. But I was so, I don't want to say in love, but I think in my mind frame, I kind of was in love and I wanted Steve to like me. And so in that summer, we worked together at a convenience store and I knew the one thing that he liked to do was drink. So mm-hmm. I decided that's what I'm going to do too. And I never really drank in high school, I, uh, only twice, literally like two times. And I started to drink. I got to hang out with him a couple of times and a couple of other guys that we worked with at the convenience store. There was at one point, even before I went off to school, that they invited me out to a party. Well, I brought a couple of my friends with me and we that were my close friends from high school. And we made sure someone had, we had a DD, we, we were doing everything right. And they stayed with me the entire time. Fine. And I was so excited for them to meet Steve. And at the time, little did I know that that same evening, so I had two of my best guy friends there and one of my girlfriends there with me at this party. And little did I know that there was a sidebar conversation between my two close guy friends. One, his name is Isaac, but we call him by his last name, Pincus. And Pincus was heading off to uh, boot camp for the Navy. And he said to my other friend, he's like, listen, like you've got to like help Christine out. I don't know what she's going through right now, but I just don't like these guys that she's hanging out with. I'm just getting a really bad vibe. Can you keep an eye on her as I head off to the Navy? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I did, I had no inkling that that was even going on, but I was too blinded by my crush on Steve and getting him to like me. So I had gone off to school. I moved about about two hours away. So I lived in like central Pennsylvania and I went to school. I was going to school in Point Park University in Pittsburgh. And so at the same time, I was still staying in close contact with Steve. We were communicating every now and again. We even got to hang out a couple of times. There was even one time where Steve picked me up from school and drove me back to our hometown together because he was from my hometown, dropping me off at a friend's house. So there were multiple occasions where we hung out together. I, I remember staying over at his house at his school one time, but there was never anything like I never felt threatened around Steve. I always felt comfortable. I never felt that I was taken advantage of in any way. And it wasn't until one weekend in October that I had gone home. I went home without my parents' knowledge. And I told them I was staying at school, but I got a ride from a friend and um, ended up staying at one of my good friend's apartments in my hometown. And my whole goal this entire weekend of going home was to hang out with Steve. And also at this point too, my parents never met him, but they already weren't fond of him just because they knew of me going to parties with him and different things like that. I think that's why I also didn't tell them because I didn't want them to know that I was coming home to try to hang out with them. (laughs) So I came home and had a really good like first Friday night and Saturday with my really good friends and went and saw a movie, went out to eat, you know, just fun things. And later that evening, we went to play pool at a local billiard and I got a text, not from Steve, but from another guy that we worked with at the convenience store. He texted me and he wanted to know if I wanted to hang out and if I wanted to go to a party that Steve was probably going to be at. And I said, of course. And so he came and he picked me up. I'll give him the name of Carl. So Carl came and he picked me up and I don't remember any of my friends trying to stop me. Basically, I think it was more, I don't truly remember the conversation, but I know it was probably something around like, hey, I'll text you or hey, I'll call you later or that sort of thing. But it was never no like, hey, I'll come with you or no, like don't go. And I think in that moment, one of my friends said to me like, Christine, like don't go. Like you really don't know this guy. Like I would have been like, I'm okay with that. I worked with him all summer. And actually Carl, I worked with him, you know, the summer between college and high school, but I also worked with him the previous summer too. So I, I knew him. I knew Carl a little bit longer than I knew Steve. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay. So 
We drove around a bit. We stopped at his house, at Carl's house, grabbed some alcohol, drove around a bit more. And then we eventually made it into like a wooded area. It was actually an old, old cemetery in the woods. And it wasn't a red flag to me because obviously a lot of kids that were underage would go out to the woods and that's where they party. And we were actually, that was where I had taken my, my good friends from high school to meet Steve for the first time, uh, maybe about a month or two months before that. So I hung out with Carl. I had a few beers with him. We were talking about, you know, his girlfriend and I was telling him how much I like Steve. He was like giving me relationship advice. And it was, I thought it was a really, really good conversation. And he kept persisting that I drink the hard liquor that he brought. And I remember it specifically, it was crown Royal and I kept saying no. And then finally, after much persistence, I gave in and took a swig of it. And after that, I don't have any recollection of anything else until I woke up in the hospital the next day. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, one thing I'm always grateful for is I'm grateful for a woman that I actually never even met. She actually was in her home the next morning and it was October 10th, 2004. And she happened to look out her window. She saw a car stopped at the stop sign and she first thought nothing of it. That's typical car stopped at the stop sign. Well, she walked away and, and for whatever reason, a few minutes later, she came back to that window and saw that same car still there. And she thought immediately something's, something's wrong. And so she continued to watch out the window. And a few moments later, she saw the passenger door open and I fall out onto the side of the road and the car then drove away and left me there. So she called 911 and my story became public from the very beginning to an extent. An ambulance came, the police came, my parents were called and they came. The friends I was staying at their apartment, I mean, they were driving around at three in the morning looking for me. They came. And so when I woke up in the hospital, I was very disoriented. And they said, we believe that you, you were raped. And I just remember thinking like, I don't, I don't really even know what that word means. But my initial reaction was I was suffering from bulimia in high school and it was starting to subside a little bit. But my first reaction, when they said that, I said, when can I get some food? So it was one of those things where I was resorting back to how I used to deal with pain. And unfortunately my, my eating disorder continued for another four years after that, but that really kickstarted it again. And so that's the pr- pretty much it of, of how the whole thing played out. I ended up prosecuting and we went to, oh, I think it's, like a, we went to like a pretrial and the event happened in, the incident happened in October. The pretrial was in January. And they, I mean, they had all the evidence. I went back to the scene of the crime with the cops and pulled out. They found my underwear. They found my socks. They found condoms with my DNA on it and his DNA on it. I mean, mm. they had what they needed. And, and so we went to a pretrial and long story short, that was January of 2005. And everything from what I understood came to a close in 2006. He was getting charged with like about 10 different accounts of whether it was rape, sexual assault, a decent assault, you know, these, these multiple charges. And because they did a plea deal and he pled guilty, the charges got lessened and he actually only ended up getting charged with like two counts of indecent assault. So. Wow. That's yeah. disappointing. Yeah. How did you feel about that? So, I mean, I think at the time in back in 2006, I, I just wanted it to be done. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be over. I didn't want to deal with it anymore. I, I wanted to get back to whatever normal life was. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't know at the time is there was no way for me to get back to what I thought was originally normal. I'm like in this new normal now, and I had to figure out how to heal and move forward. But I don't think I realized that at the time. And at the time when I was told everything was done and over with, I was, I was okay with it. Cause I was ready. I was ready to just move on with my life and be done with this. However, it wasn't until last year that 
So when I started writing the book process, started looking things up, like going on the docket sheets. And I noticed that there were a lot of things that came up like in the docket sheet that just weren't making sense. And in 2015, I actually read an article, like I said, it was right before, right before I started the, my nonprofit, right before I was like gearing up to hunker down and get the book written. And I found an article in my hometown paper and I'm reading it. And, and it was my perpetrator and that he was getting arrested and he was going to jail for two years. And as I'm reading it, it's my story. Like exactly oh, wow. like, like a girl was found, victim said she was sexually assaulted or raped or however it was worded, never said my name, but exactly the same thing. Like talked about me being at the pool hall, talked about being left on the side of the road. First time like, oh my gosh, like, wow. I mean, so I'm finding out that he's going to jail for two years for two accounts of indecent assault in the newspaper. And at that point, even too, I didn't really like think anything of it. And it wasn't until last year, I tried to implement Marcy's law in Pennsylvania last year. And it wasn't until I talked to someone from Marcy's Law and they were like, you found out your perpetrator went to jail through an article in the newspaper. And I was like, yeah, I love this girl to death. You know, we're close, we're friends. And, and I was like, yeah, that's how I found out. Is something wrong with that? Isn't, <laughs> isn't, isn't that how everybody finds out? <laughs> she's like, no, she's like, no, Christine, that isn't how everybody finds out. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's one of those things where like individuals that don't experience something like this or don't experience a traumatic event, whether it's sexual assault or abuse or domestic violence, like you really don't know what it's like, even as the person that's experiencing it, I mean, you really don't know the next steps. And that's why I was mm-hmm. like, she told me that I started reaching out to, I started talking to my mom about it. And since the book has been out and stuff, me and my mom have a very open conversation about this kind of stuff a lot. And so she actually started digging into some things on her own. And we just thought, Things were looking weird because we were told back in 2006 that he was going to go on the national sex offender list, even Mm -hmm. though he was being, his charges were being lessened. And we realized when we looked it up on the national sex offender list that he was no longer on there. The only place he showed up on the sex offender list was in Florida. And that's because he lived in Florida at one point. So we started doing research and we started digging and I started working with an advocate at rape crisis center that I actually worked at right after this had happened. And So we started digging and the pieces that came up, we found out that a lot of my rights were violated, that there were multiple times that court was being held after 2006 and I wasn't informed and I should have been informed and that the charges were changed at some point, but we don't know when. And the other pieces too, the county that kept all the files, wherever they keep them in archives, whatever, that in 2012, all the counties in Pennsylvania had the option to destroy all their, their previous case files. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of it's still like, I don't understand the full scope of things. And something happened to around 2012 where Megan's law had changed. And so that's why even, even why he wasn't appearing on the national sex offender list, it was because some of these things with Megan's law had changed. And so we realized doing this research now, it wasn't any of my perpetrators fault, obviously that I wasn't informed or anything like that. It was obviously our judicial system. And I'll be honest, like, I mean, we got to the point with my advocate I was working with and she said, you know, the next step for you to do is said, right now we looked, we tried to tie everything together. We could with what we have. And she said, the next thing that you could do is call PCAR, which is a Pennsylvania coalition against rape. And they have legal advocates there and you can tell them what's happened. You can tell them, you know, what, you know, and the information we put together and see if there is anything we can do. And I'll be honest, it's this looking into all this has brought up a lot of feelings in the past year that I haven't experienced in a long time. And Mm -hmm. this isn't even in the book because the book was already out before all this happened. And um, 
yeah, I, I called once and it rang and rang and I couldn't leave a message and I hung up. So I tried one more time and it rang and rang and rang. And I said, okay, it's not my day to call and find out. And truthfully, I just now with like COVID and everything that's been going on this year, I just haven't, I haven't had the strength to actually try to call again. So I don't know yet if I will. I want to, because I want to see if there are answers, but part of me also doesn't because I don't want to be disappointed. Yeah. And that makes sense. And that's valid because I'm sure it's exhausting to dig up all of this trauma and kind of reopen those wounds after years. Yeah. I remember last year we went to the beach, me and my my family tried to go to the beach once a summer if we can do it. And we went to the beach and I remember that was literally like right around the time frame that we started digging into everything. And I remember there were just a couple of days at the beach and I just was like so down and I was depressed and it just, I was like, I need to like get out of this funk. Like I'm at the beach, I'm here with my, my four-year-old and my two-year-old <laughs> and I need to be having a good time. Like, right. you know, and I remember texting one of my best friends and she's was one of my roommates in college when I was at Point Park. And, you know, she, she's been there through it all with me. And I just said to her, I said like, holy crap, Julie, I, I can tell you. I now remember those feelings that I was feeling because for a long time after this time frame has gone, I really didn't remember anymore. I remember there was pain and I remember there, there was sadness and all those other feelings, but I didn't remember exactly how my body felt and how I felt. And that was the first time in years last summer that I remembered what that felt like. And I just was like, oh, I know, wow, I just don't want to feel like that again. Yeah, yeah, rightfully <laughs> so. So all of this is so traumatic and so much of your life I'm sure was disrupted. So how did this affect your life, but also impact your family's lives? Obviously like that, I mean, it affected my life a lot. I mean, it changed the way that I viewed intimacy, changed the way that I viewed relationships. It changed the way that I looked at the world. I mean, I knew growing up as a teenager, I know that life is not rainbows and candy <laughs> yeah. really putting it to perspective after right after that happened that there are mean and not even mean evil people in the world the two evil things and it just re- that really put into perspective for me and it really cast a dark light on the world but I mean throughout obviously my healing I, have, I also have learned that there are still amazing and kind individuals and and wonderful people out there that are trying to make changes and for my family in the beginning, it was, it was pretty rough. I know my mom sent telling me that she was struggling because she didn't know what to do. When her and my dad got the call that I was in the hospital from the police, like, I mean, they really wouldn't even tell them what happened to me. All they really told them that was, I was in the hospital, I was being taken care of and they just needed to come immediately. And so I got filled in, but my mom, she told me, she's like, I never experienced anything like this. I didn't know how to process this. I didn't know how to help you process this. And she said, before we left that hospital, I asked the nurse, I said, what do I do? How do I, how do I help her? And she said, you know, well, you could call the local rape crisis center in my hometown. They were called victim services. And the nurse said, you can get an advocate from victim services and we'll call them for you. And someone will come down right now. We usually don't contact them unless somebody asks though. And so my mom said, okay to that an advocate came down and that's immediately how I started working with an advocate from victim services. So I'm an only child. It's just me. We, we had like family session with my advocate trying to figure everything out. And the one thing that always kind of really pulls at my heartstrings is just my dad. I do. You don't see him get emotional mm-hmm. very often. The day after it happened, I remember going home with them 
And that evening, my dad left the house. We had no idea where he went. He, my aunt called our house maybe like, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes later after my dad had left. She said that my dad had showed up at her doorstep, refused to come into her house, but just sat on their steps sobbing. Mm. And it eventually from that moment, then everybody in my dad's side of the family is looking for my dad. We don't know where he is. So people come over to our house. So then the whole side of my dad's family knows what happened, which is at the time I didn't, I didn't care. I was so emotionally drained and still a little bit disoriented that at that point it didn't really matter. But like thinking back in that moment, I just remember like standing in my parents' house with like my aunt's my aunt coming over with her like eight month old son in her arms, you know, to make sure that we're okay. And then my dad showed up eventually kind of went and buried himself in his room. But since then I've only, like I said, I've only seen him get emotional a couple of times. And this was something that he got very emotional about. And that tore me up because it's my dad. He doesn't really get emotional. And even right now I'm, I'm getting a little emotional over it. Funny, when I started writing my letters to my family and my friends, because we never really talked about it, I was a little intimidated to to talk to him more than maybe my mom. I wrote his letter out and it took me a year to give it to him. And when I gave it to him, he he said, like, finally, someone's asking me how, like, I felt and what I went through. And, And actually, he was the one that got it back to me the fastest. I mean, he had it done within a week. His was short and sweet and right to the point. But I mean, he, you could tell the emotion was there and just the frustration being a parent and having to experience your child go through something traumatic. And even to this day, it's funny. I always joke around with my husband because my husband will talk to anybody about anything. And <laughs> there will be there were times before we had kids and we'd be leaving my parents' house and my husband, his name's JR, and he would say something to me. I'm like, oh, so you and dad talked about that. And, you know, they get in the conversation of even like religion and, and, and mm-hmm. my dad kind of had a falling out with religion after this had happened because he couldn't understand why God would let something like this happen. Mm-hmm. Even though me and my dad hadn't had that kind of open conversation, it's nice to know that my husband is also doing that as well. And he's, he's having those kind of conversations. So long story short, I mean, it really did. I mean, it affected our family for a long time. And I know my mom even said, you know, in those first couple months, just moving forward from that, like, she was just trying to keep her marriage afloat. She was trying to figure out, like my my dad had gone back to work immediately. And my mom said, even at work, she couldn't tell anybody. She's yeah. like, who am I supposed to tell? Nobody talks about this kind of stuff. She felt the shame of the stigma that people put on rape and sexual assault, even though it didn't actually happen to her. And mm-hmm. so that really affected our family. And it just was, it was crazy to me because like I said, I never really thought about how it affected them and how that shame and guilt, even though the victim or the survivor, however individuals identify themselves, how that shame can actually put on a ripple effect. And, and it won't be probably as parent or as the survivor obviously feels it the most, but I never realized that they, they would experience that shame and guilt too as well. So it definitely, it made an impact. I mean, we're a lot stronger as a family now, and we definitely have healed together. And even same with friends, some of my friends, I've had to cut out of my life just because they became toxic. But a lot of my really good, close and trusted friends that have been, I mean, it's crazy to say this, but I I know a lot of people that don't have friends from high school, but I literally have probably about eight solid friends that are all from high school that I still talk to. And we hang out on a regular basis. Like we're all grown now. We're married. We have kids and we hang out together. And just, I think that also made our relationship stronger too, just because we were almost in a sense experiencing it together. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
what has your healing journey looked like? Like what coping mechanisms or healing modalities have worked for you moving forward? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. So obviously everybody's healing is is different. Healing's mm-hmm. not linear. What I've done for myself, you know, might be totally different for somebody else. But I think for me, one of the big things that has really, really helped me is one therapy. Therapy is huge. <laughs> <laughs> I still go to therapy now and it's for different things too. I mean, yeah. obviously a lot of things stemmed from what had happened, whether that was depression. I went to a therapist that specifically focused on eating disorders and I even have a bit of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so even right now, that's a lot of times, even now in therapy, that's sometimes what we talk about because I was having a lot of those, a lot of triggers were coming up last year. And so Therapy has been really, really great. I just recommend anybody, anybody should go to therapy. It doesn't matter. Um, I agree. (laughs) It's a good thing. Therapy has been a huge factor in my healing process and has been very, very helpful in having me move forward. The other piece is sharing my story and talking about it. And sharing your story can produce so many emotions. And sharing your story for the first time is just scary. It's scary. You don't know the type of reaction you're going to get. I mean, and I think every time I share my story, I do still, I still get nervous. There are things I get nervous about. I get nervous that, oh my gosh, someone is going to be in the audience and know my perpetrator. I get nervous that, oh my gosh, like these people are going to judge me. They're going to think Mm -hmm. it's my fault because I was drinking. All those things still come back up. But when I start sharing my story and I start talking and I start seeing the, the reaction of the individuals that are listening, it just immediately makes that wash away. And I remember I shared my story publicly for the first time. I had joined RAIN, which is the Rape Abuse Incest National Network. They started a speakers bureau back in 2006. And so I joined. Basically what they do is they just send an email blast out to all their members, uh, the speaker bureau members. And they say, hey, we have a speaker request. You know, are you available? If so, here's the contact information. And so the first one I got one was at the University of Delaware. And so I, at the time I was going, I transferred schools. I left Point Park University in Pittsburgh and transferred to Penn State. And I was living in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this because, and and honestly, I don't even know how I came across rain. All I know is that I found it. And I said, you know what? I am going to do this because I think it's really going to help me move forward. And so my mom couldn't go with me, but my aunt drove me. We drove together to the University of Delaware and she sat through my first presentation. And honestly, I don't even think, I think I just got up and shared my story. Like (laughs) I don't even know that I like fully like prepped and wrote it all out. I just got up, I spoke and I spoke my truth and it just was a relief. It was a relief to, to just get that off my shoulders. And I really felt that I had value again, that I was taking ownership of that story, realizing that this had happened to me. And as a person, I'm not just a walking victim and that's splashed across my forehead. And that's what everybody sees me as, as I, I'm a human, I have value and I'm more than my story. And so that was really a pivotal moment for me in that process. And so I started, you know, as rain would send more opportunities over depending on location and whatnot, I would try to go, I probably from 2006, probably till about 2012, I would only do like one or two speaking engagements a year because it still was something that you know, I wanted to do, but I couldn't do it often enough because I still was trying to support other aspects of my healing. So speaking about it was really helpful. And at the time, even when I first spoke at the University of Delaware, I was actually in a relationship. I was engaged to a guy and he unfortunately did not 
want me to share my story. He didn't come with me. And that was besides the point. I thought I didn't mind. I couldn't even like get a good look out of him. He wanted me to stay silent. And I knew going forward, mm. I couldn't, I needed to be able to share my story if that's what I wanted to do. And so that relationship had ended, but I started to share my story. And then as I continued further down, one thing that I kept doing in my own healing too, was I thought that I needed to be in a relationship to heal that someone was going to heal me and being in that relationship, yeah. whoever that was, was going to heal me. <laughs> and I got to the point where, and, and actually my, my good friend, Julie, like I said, she was one that she's a friend of mine that was my roommate at point park. It is still one of my best friends today. And she said to me, she said, Christine, she's like, I think you need to take a break for yourself. You've been in a relationship ever since this happened. I think you need to take some time off and just focus on yourself. And I did. And I took off, I, I wasn't in a relationship for like 18 months. And I really took the opportunity to learn about myself, learn who I was in this new type of normal. I mean, granted that took, oh my goodness, that didn't happen until let's just say about 2010. So <laughs> <laughs> it took about six years for me to figure that out. Right. <laughs> but I took the time, you know, I did things that I couldn't do when I was in a relationship before. I, I love Lady Gaga. I went and saw her like eight times in concert in that time frame, And I just, I kind of like dove myself into her music. Then it wasn't until I got out of kind of that. And I say 18 months because after the 18 months was over, a friend of mine who I'd known for about three years, JR, who is now my husband, I moved to Pittsburgh where he was living. Also, I got transferred for work there and he actually helped me get transferred there because we had worked together in the past. And as soon as I moved back to Pittsburgh, neither of us were really looking for a relationship. And then we ended up in one. And <laughs> we, start, we started seeing the signs that I was like, you know, sometimes I say like, Oh, do you know who, how do you know when you meet the one? And, and truthfully, like, it was kind of weird it, how it all worked out because I mean, I laid it out all up front, like everything that I had been through, same thing with him, just told each other our past. And, and we were accepting of that and where we are now and, and what we wanted to do with our lives. And we have the same values and he's my best friend. And the biggest thing is too, is it's, I mean, obviously now kids, it's harder. He used to come to a lot of my speaking engagements. He'd be, he'd sit in the back and he'd, he'd cheer me on, you know, but it wasn't until I took that time to allow myself to learn who I really was in this new normal, because all like those, the six years prior to that, I was so focused on being in a relationship and hoping the other person would heal me. And what I really needed was myself. Yeah. Those are a couple of the really big steps that helped me heal was therapy, sharing my story, it's scary to find yourself. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but if once you work through that, it's truly amazing to learn to love yourself. Yeah. That gives me so much hope. Thank you oh. for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. So do you have triggers or trauma that still come up today? I do. They can be different than they were in the past. Sometimes when I go and share my story in a different format, like when I was writing the book, that was new for me to write it out. So that caused a lot of triggers and that caused a lot of anxiety. Like I'd mentioned about last year too, kind of digging back into the case that really brought up a lot of triggers. It brought up a lot of memories. I would say probably for me, most recently triggers that I have had is for example, like, like when they've released like documentaries, like the hunting ground a couple of years ago or recently, oh my gosh, Epstein. They just released his, the documentary series on Netflix. Sometimes I can start those. I, I just have to stop. I just, sometimes I just can't 
get through them. It just, it depends. It's not usually anything specific. I can say for the hunting ground, at least I know when I started to watch it, I made it through the first 10 minutes and it just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And I think now if I would go and watch the hunting ground now, I think I'd be in a little bit better place, but I did start to watch this being started to watch it last week. Truthfully, I only made it through 10 minutes, but it wasn't because of it actually a trigger kids in life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Those can be triggering to me still. The other thing that can be triggering is too, is the one thing that I am working on through my nonprofit right now is I'm working to help share other people's stories. And, you know, sometimes when I, when I do read other people's stories, kind of same thing with the documentaries or whatnot, sometimes they can be triggering just depending on the story and whatnot. And I say that because I want everybody to know that I want to help people share their stories. So please don't think that just because if I get triggered, it has nothing to do with you personally. It's just still me healing and I might need to take a break, but I, I'll come back to it. The only other thing that will still come to mind sometimes is the biggest thing is when sometimes when I'm one, when I'm speaking, I get paranoid. I get anxious that someone is going to know my perpetrator. Sometimes I get nervous about the work that I do revolving around sexual violence. The fact that is he going to find out? I don't know. I, I really don't know where my mind goes with that. But another piece of it is sometimes when I go home in my hometown, now, especially if I'm by myself, there, there have been a number of times where I go home to my hometown by myself, but it's typically because I'm going to, they have like a branch campus for one of the colleges there and I'll go and speak. But when I'm typically going home alone to my hometown and I'm like in a store by myself, I have a tendency to like get nervous. I remember specifically a year ago, I'd went to do a speaking engagement and I stopped at the store to grab something for it. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being in line and someone had come up with like behind me and out of my peripheral vision, I saw the silhouette of the person mm-hmm. and it kind of reminded me of the same build of my perpetrator. And I'm just like, okay, just check me out fast. Just get me out of this store. I can't even turn around and look who is behind me. It probably wasn't him, mm-hmm. but I had just gotten myself so paranoid and so anxious and worked up that I just had to get out of there. So that's another trigger that sometimes will really be difficult to get through, especially like I said, that's why I try not to put myself in that situation. So I know that obviously I won't be triggered, but it's bound to happen. I think sometimes it can happen almost anywhere. If I see that type of thing in my peripheral vision, it does get me anxious sometimes, but more so in my hometown. Yeah, that makes sense. So what knowledge and understanding did you have of rape and sexual assault before this happened to you, maybe compared to now? Like when you were younger growing up, what did that look like? So really, I felt like I had no knowledge. I mean, truthfully, in high school, I know we did sex ed. I know that we learned how to use protection. But other than that, that was about it. As I think I mentioned earlier that when I woke up in the hospital and I was told that I was raped, I really had no idea what that really even meant. Yeah. And now is a whole other world where diving into the work that I, I do consistently looking at different statistics. And it's crazy too. This is one thing that I'll say is that when I first started my nonprofit, <laughs> the statistic actually, I think it used to be, oh my gosh, it's, it's leaving my memory. It was like <laughs> every, every 96 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. And that number has gone has gone down now as it's now less time. I believe oh. at last I looked, I think it was like 92. I mean, I know, no, I think it was 103 seconds. Every 103 seconds, another American was sexually assaulted. And this was back in 2015. And I believe now it's like every 92 seconds. It was definitely a different number. I don't have the exact number, <laughs> but it's crazy to see that it's still something that is so prevalent. So many different 
aspects that just come into play. I've worked with like Title IX coordinators at the universities here in Pittsburgh on different things. And I remember specifically having a conversation with one that I worked with and she, this individual had worked at two different schools in, in the area and just having a general conversation about it and the dynamic of how different schools are. Like, for example, like one school, it was more it was more frequent for individuals to be assaulted per se and sense through the internet, through computers. And in, in another campus, it was totally different ballpark, like totally different situations happening. And it's just interesting to see the different communities that even different universities in the same city that have all these different aspects of sexual violence happening. And so I'm definitely a lot more educated. Obviously, I'm trying to figure out ways to teach my kids about consent, you know, and then the other thing that I, I'm still learning every day, I'm still learning. I recently launched a podcast through the nonprofit where we feature resources of individuals that have started resources such as like We Are Her. We Are Her mm-hmm. was on an episode earlier when we first launched. And it's also turned into, well, we are planning in the next couple of months, maybe to have a month where we have survivors share their stories and then we'll continue to rotate. But it's really, I mean, it's some of the organizations that we've spoken with, like We Are Her. Another one is like the She Will Speak series. I'm a Survivor Inc., just to name a few. They're all doing different things, combat the, the same issue. So I'm still learning and I'm still educating because even in different cultures, sexual violence is different in every culture as mm-hmm. well. So yeah, definitely, definitely a lot more educated than I was before this happened. I wish that I would have known more. That's why my goal is with my own kids. Many of my friends want me to teach their kids. I don't know. (laughs) I'm more than happy to help in any way, but that's, that's one of my own goals is to make sure that, you know, my kids and our future generations are educated about these topics, because if we continue to talk about them, then they won't be so taboo and, and people will be comfortable about coming forward, not to reporting maybe to officials or police or whomever, but just telling somebody. So, yeah. Yeah, it make a huge difference. So what do you want listeners to take away from this episode? What would you say to someone struggling that is maybe in the place that you were? Well, I think that the one thing that I would say is that there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Healing takes time. Healing is not a quick fix. Healing is not something that's going to happen overnight. And I hope that the one thing is that, that people do take away from this conversation is that you can still have an amazing life. Mm-hmm. You can still have a good life. You can still have follow your dreams and your passions, but you know what? You got to make sure that you do take the time for yourself. And you know what? If today, if the thing that you did today was get out of bed and that's what you did and that's okay because you're taking the steps to get where you need to go. And no matter where you are in your healing, it's okay to be where you are. I think that's a lot of things where, uh, and I know I even have a tendency to get sucked up into it, but I do get sucked up into following like inspirational people, which obviously give me inspiration to move forward. But sometimes it also can bring me down because I feel like I'm not doing enough. And then all Mm -hmm. that negative self-talk comes in, which is absolutely (laughs) just horrible. (laughs) Um, So making sure you're doing what you need to do for you. I actually recently started reading a book. It's a, it's a workbook and it's for women who have experienced trauma and it's by Joyce Myers. And I'd gotten it a couple years ago and I never took the opportunity to go through it. So I'm going through it now. But one of the things I just read actually in the chapter today was also figuring out your personality. So if you've ever experienced anything, anything traumatic, obviously after that, things are different. And 
I know for me, I fought so hard to try to get back to who I was before, but I didn't take the time until at least six years later to figure out who I really was now. And so this might sound kind of cliche to uh, actually take a personality test, but like doing something (laughs) like that, that's what I read in the book today is that, you know, even doing something like a personality test to figure out what your personality is like. So you also can have an understanding of yourself and knowing where, Hey, why did I react that way to this person and what they said to me? They really weren't trying. I don't think they were trying to be this way. So figuring that out too can be very helpful. So I just hope that people take away from this, that you know it's okay to be where you are in your healing. You will get through it. It is going to take time, but there is a community out there that believes you and supports you. That is such a beautiful message. Thank you. So I know that music is so important to you. It's been a huge factor in my own healing process. Music is so powerful. So I usually close out the episode with a little song recommendation. So do you have a song or a few songs that deeply resonate with you and your story? Yeah. So when I was thinking about this, I obviously a song that always comes to mind for me is Christina Aguilera's Fighter. It was a song that I, a couple years after everything had happened, about four years, a couple of my friends that had done majored in film helped me make a music video for it. But it's kind of thinking of other songs that have really helped me in my healing. And that's usually my, my go-to is fighter. But when my husband and I met, he is a big Dave Matthews fan. And, you know, I obviously, I, I listened to Dave Matthews, you know, growing up and I'm more into like the top 100 hits kind of, kind of thing. <laughs> and I, I knew Dave Matthews and I liked his hits. My husband really introduced me to, to Dave Matthews band. And one song that he played for me was called Gray Street. And he kind of chose it after, obviously, after knowing everything that I had been through. And the words just really, really resonated with the way that I have felt in the past and even sometimes feel now, per se. And I think it goes more back to when you're in that healing or even when I get triggered now, sometimes I feel this way. And like the, the premise of the song is really when they sing about it, they're talking about this woman. I mean, in the lyrics, they say like, she's, she's stumbling through her memories. She's just staring out in a gray street. She's thinking, Hey, how did it come to this? And I've had a lot of those own thoughts through depression, through whatever else. And it's a sad song when I listen to it now, it's a lot more powerful because it also reminds me of how far I've come. And actually it's funny. I was telling my husband this maybe a week or so ago, And he was like, really? Gray Street? You picked Dave Matthews band? And I said, (laughs) well, yeah, of course. I love Dave Matthews. I mean, obviously you really, you really showed me Dave Matthews band as a whole and everything, but that's one that I don't really talk about a whole lot. And it's really done a lot in my own healing. So yeah, definitely Gray Street by Dave Matthews band. I love that. So if listeners want to connect with you or reach out to you, where do you want them to find you? I know you mentioned your nonprofit, yeah. your podcast, your book, all that stuff. Oh my gosh, of course. So my nonprofit is Voices of Hope and you can find it the website at www.voices-of-hope.org. So it's just voicesofhope.org with a dash for every space. My social media handles. So on Instagram, it's voicesofhope underscore. Facebook, it's voicesofhope2015. And on Twitter, it's just voicesofhope15. 
Sorry for all the different ones. <laughs> no worries. I'll link them. <laughs> Thanks. I tried to keep them consistent. It didn't work out that way. For the book, you can find it on Amazon. If you just search for Christine Irwin, Christine with a K, you can find it right on Amazon. The book is also called Voices of Hope as well. And then lastly, the podcast. So the podcast is called Unveil Your Voice. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Stitcher, Deezer, and Spotify. Awesome. So I will link all of those in the show notes below. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your your insights and your story. I really appreciate you being here with us today. Oh my gosh, no, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for even, you know, reaching out after you had mentioned you read the book. I mean, it it really means so much. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. I hope this podcast left you feeling empowered, better understood, and less alone in this crazy thing called life. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.